Please turn in God's word this morning to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Don't know if this sounds familiar to you, but it's Sunday morning and perhaps you're in your home preparing for church and all you can think about is, oh, what about Wednesday's rehearsal? What about my test on Thursday? What about that activity that I haven't signed up for in October. I really got to get on these things. And, or what about, oh, the food that I got to prepare for that meal because those people are coming over. And, or you're driving to church and you're arguing about who gets the front seat, who gets the back seat, who gets to the roof and all of that. And you say, oh, how do I worship? Well, that is, starts on Saturday night. <laughs> And it starts before you wake up on Sunday morning. Because if you aren't preparing that way, then Sunday morning, the first thought in your mind is all of these things. Things, things, things. And so this morning, uh, I want us to, to quiet our, our hearts for a moment and, and to just ask the Lord to help us focus on worship and upon Him. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as we prepare to hear your word to hear about a rather bleak time in history, a time not unlike our own, and we need to hear these words. And sometimes we are too busy and tuned out and aren't giving ear. Help us to listen today. Help your servant to bring your word, to not be distracted by all of the the things that need to be said and done. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, these first verses of Genesis chapter 6 are transitional. Last week we read the list of the patriarchs who lived on the earth in the days leading up to the flood. And they lived in these evil days as they called upon the Lord. That's what we saw at the end of chapter 4. They were calling. In these days, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord for His help. One walked so closely with the Lord... We read in verses 22 and and 24 of chapter 5 that he did not die. He was taken up to God. And these days of darkness and these days of, of struggle as these saints were living were reminded in that that description of Enoch that to walk with the Lord is the way to be delivered through a world with all of its distractions, with all of its Uh, things that must get done. It reminds us that we can be delivered from death and from all that would pull us away from the one who is life by looking to Him. On the opening verses of Genesis 6, God gives a summary of life on the earth before the flood. These verses can be something understood of something of an interlude, a calm before the storm, as it were, because we know what's coming next, and that is a description of the flood. The flood judgment, which is devastating Jesus said when he came upon the earth that things would be much like in the days of Noah before his coming, where people were giving in marriage, where they were receiving in marriage, going about their daily duties just as in the days of Noah, and then the end came, and they were unprepared, he says in Matthew 24. So many go about their daily affairs today without any thought of the end. I wonder how many of us do that. 
on a daily basis. Listen to these words as we think upon this description of the world and our place in it. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. This is the word of God. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and also afterward, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Beloved, these opening verses have been translated or understood in a number of different ways. This phrase, the sons of God and the daughters of men. What in the world do we make of that? Well, there have been three primary interpretations. One that isn't so terribly, isn't, isn't held by many today, and that is that we're talking about the descendants of those who were rulers, the sons of gods, and the daughters of men, the peasants. So a, an intermarrying between those of, of kingly class and those of the commoner class. Not held by many. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, interpretation in between that you have to, to do to, uh, to, to come up with that. There's another uh, interpretation that's very interesting. It even has some conservative support, and that is that these sons of men are angels, and they're having sexual relations with the daughters of men, with the evil uh, men of the earth. You say, wow, that's pretty far-fetched. Well, there, there's, there's exegetical evidence for that because the sons of God are, when that phrase is used elsewhere in the Scriptures, it refers to angels. In Job chapter 1, uh, in Daniel where this is being used. But again, it seems rather hard for us to, to, to read that here without some more explanation as to what exactly that means. It's a, uh, it's, it doesn't seem very plausible to me, given that what Jesus says about the angels uh, in, in Matthew 22, he says, in that coming day, there'll be neither giving in marriage or receiving in marriage uh, uh, for the... Um, uh, we will be like the angels in heaven, or they're, 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 at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven, indicating that there's no desire on their part. And yet, wrestled with this all week, trying to understand this, many different commentators, and yet, what do the demons do in the Gospels? They want to take on flesh. They want to inhabit people, and they want to lead others astray. There seems to be uh, some warrant to interpreting that way or, or to, to not dismiss this idea when we think about what the Gospels say concerning the demons. You see, it's all about leading astray. That's really the, the heart of it uh, when we talk about this particular interpretation. We certainly know that the devil and his demons want to lead us astray. 
But the one that is more, I think, most plausible and seems to make the most sense in the context is that the sons of God and the daughters of men are a delineation between the descendants of Seth, the godly line, and the descendants of Cain, who is uh, that of the line of the devil. And um, this, this most commonly held view, then, leads us to, to, to believe that what's being taught, it leads me to believe that what's being really said here in this interlude is that God is warning against mixed marriages, against a, 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 a being unequally yoked. You say, well, now that, that, that too has to have some context and some interpretation. I think it, I think it does in that when God speaks about marriage, it's at, it's at these opportune times right before things go really bad. Genesis 2.24, God talks about marriage and says, the husband shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, right before what? The fall. He says marriage matters. It's important. Then here again, right before the flood, he says, before judgment comes, be aware of how important it is that you are not unequally yoked, that you're not married to one who would lead you astray. What is happening here in verse, uh, verse 2, it says they took their wives any, as their wives, any they chose. No, no, no discretion, just whomever. Especially those who are attractive to them, we, we read here. So the outward appearance was what they were really looking at and really focusing in on. But the, the Bible states God wants husbands and wives to walk together in the Lord. He wants godly offspring. That's what he wants from marriage, Malachi 2 tells us. We're not to be unequally yoked. When, when Paul's talking about this to the Corinthians, just reading from 2 Corinthians 6 to, to help us come into this, uh, this point this morning, listen to these words. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portions does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Sons and daughters of God. Marriage is important. This solid foundation. Young people, as you think about that, as you observe your parents' marriage in the Lord, as you think about marriage, what will you be looking for? in that partner. Culture defines beauty as skin deep, as something that's on the surface. The Bible speaks of a deeper beauty. It says, beautiful are those who bring the gospel, is one description of beauty. Another is when Sarah is spoken of, she's spoken of as a beautiful woman, but her inner beauty is what's highlighted in 1 Peter chapter 3. That's the type of beauty, the type of of person that you are to be looking for. Culture, the culture sets 
sells an outward image that stimulates desire. Men are tempted by it. Women are, are tempted to conform to it so that they might find a man. And there is little talk of the deeper work that God wants in his image bearers. Why is he grieved here in Genesis 6? He says, they're fleshly. They don't, even, they don't even look like they bear my image. The way they act, the way they talk, the way they live, they don't even look like me. And I'm grieved by it. He is grieved by such things. We are to cultivate deeper beauty. I remember a song that was on a children's CD that my children and I used to listen to. I promised them I wouldn't sing it this morning. It's, uh, it's a song by Judy Rogers, who, who would be a great uh, artist to, to listen to, and maybe at a family camp sometime to bring her in to, to play the music. But Isabel was a pig. Kids, I want you to listen. Isabel is a pig with a ring in her snout. You can dress Izzy up, but you can't take her out. She will jump in the middle of a big mud puddle because Isabel is a pig. She's quoting Proverbs 11.22. It's the Proverbs of life for the people of God. That proverb reads, like a gold ring in a pig's snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks good judgment or discretion. It isn't just about outward beauty. It isn't just about looking nice on the outside. What's going on on the inside? She goes on in the song. Now a pretty little girl, when her temper shows, looks like a ping, a pig with a ring in her nose. All the cute little ribbons and ruffles and rings look silly when you do them foolish things. You can dress up a pig, but you can't take her out with a bright, oh, I want to sing it so bad, with a bright gold ring in her pink pig snout. She will jump in the middle of a big mud puddle because a pig is a pig is a pig. That has stuck with me, and, and it is so... True. This outward, just dressing up, and then this, but there's this inner ugliness that just rests there, or this inner whining, or this inner, this inner yuck. It reminded me of Samson's Delilah. Song continues on, this song by Judy Rogers, talking about how actions betray what a person is on the inside, no matter how you dress them up. The emphasis is to cultivate inner beauty. The Bible doesn't just portray those women who were outwardly beautiful but inwardly ugly. It portrays shallow men too. Listen to what the Bible says about Absalom. Absalom is set before us in 2 Samuel 14. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it when it was heavy on him, he weighed the hair of his head. Yes, he cut it. It says it twice. Like, can you believe this? 200 shekels by the king's weight. Now there's some variance about what the weight is. But the point is, he's so vain that he's cutting his hair and saying, look at my lavish locks. And the Bible commentators, most of them will comment on it. Matthew Henry in particular says, nothing, nothing in here. Absalom is this, want, this would-be leader. Nothing in here about wisdom and piety as he leads God's people, as he lives among God's people. Nothing. 
Only that he loved to comb his hair and cut it. Yes, cut it. And then weigh it. And what do we see in the next chapter? He tries to steal the hearts of the people from the king. There's a sinister element here. Attraction first. He would give a listening ear and adjudicate. And then he sought to steal the hearts of Israel. 2 Samuel 15 tells us. Not a man who would be a good catch. All about himself. Well, what's the conclusion or what's the point of all this? Seek more than outward beauty. Seek more than outward beauty. Seek to cultivate more than an outward beauty. Be the, be the man, that young man that a young Christian woman would want to marry and be a young woman who a young Christian man would want to marry. Back to Genesis chapter 6. These are dark days. What to do in dark days? What do, you, what do we do in dark days? Well, for that, we go to another place in, in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 29. The Israelites, you remember, were in very dark times. They had been uh, sent into Babylon for exile, or they were soon to be there, some of them. And what does God say to them? How are you to act in dark times? What are you to be doing? It says this. It says, take wives, build homes, settle down and have children. And point them all to the Lord. And live in community. Be light in the darkness. Quite something, as I was preparing this sermon this week, I found myself going from beginning to end, beginning to end in the Scriptures. Genesis, Revelation, Genesis, Revelation. I want to turn to Revelation just for a moment because as I'm thinking about Babylon and the Israelites in Babylon, what does Revelation call the world in which we live? Babylon. That place that wants to take us captive, to subdue us, and to make us look like it. And listen to what John sees in Revelation 18, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. There we see that the church is pictured as living among in Babylon and needing to be faithful while she waits for Christ to come. After this, I, John, saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Genesis 6 echoing in your ears. God looked at the world and saw all only evil all the time. Verse 4, then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Then ahead to verse 9, the kings of the earth, the rulers who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning, when that coming judgment 
arrives. They will stand far off in the fear of her torment and say, Alas! Alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Suddenly, in a moment, your judgment has come. All that splendor, all that glory that we wanted so badly for ourselves to live forever, gone. Verse 16, alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Pursuit of wealth. Oh, if we can just get the economy going again, then everything will be fine. Then we'll be happy again. Then all will be right with the world. Because after all, wealth is where it's at. No. Here again, we see the suddenness of judgment. The beauty of the city is fleeting and it will be destroyed. Beware. Beware of who you partner yourself with. Beware of how you live and act, what you chase after. Those of you who are married, those of you who are single, what is it you're pursuing? Well, coming back to Genesis chapter 6 again. The next verse has a variety of interpretations as well. There in Genesis 6, verse 3, we read, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide, shall not contend, shall not strive in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. What's, what's this meaning is found here? Well, again, there's a number of thoughts about what's going on here. The fall has had this great effect on us. We're unable to discern without the Spirit of God. We read that in the New Testament. It was true back then, but it was becoming so bad that God couldn't appeal to anything, even to bear natural revelation. People were saying things and doing things that were just contrary to nature. Does that sound familiar? And, and what are the people of God to be doing? Continuing to speak to the truth, to live it out, to live it faithfully. And the Lord declares here in Genesis chapter 6 that his days of witness were coming to an end. What a warning not to grieve the testimony of the Spirit who strives, who contends, if we could put it that way, with us and speaks to us and wants us to understand the truth, to have our eyes open that we might see. We would be praying for that, that God would continue to give us eyes for the truth. Paul warned, in the days before the return of Christ, what it would be like. People would be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud and arrogant and abusive and disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. I'm reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3. Many would have an appearance of godliness, but deny its power. They would talk about religion as being important, but there would be no power. There would be no putting of sin to death. There would be be no saying no to ungodliness. Like, yeah, I, you know, my religion, that's something I do on Sunday. That's kind of that's kind of my day to express my religious self. But I worship other things the rest of the week. I don't act that way the rest of the week. I don't talk that way. And you say, woo. Don't get close to one. Don't 
intend to marry one who acts that way, who says, yeah, I know, I go to a Christian school and I do those things because that's where I'm going, but I don't really, that's not really who I am. We must call out to God daily to help us to live that way, even when we're mocked at school, when we're laughed at in the classroom of of university. We're to walk as children of the light, as sons and daughters of God. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil and they are short. Do not be foolish, therefore, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's our purpose. That's our function. That's, our, that's our, the, the end of our examination, of our discovery, the will of God. Not what is most popular in the world right now or what would get us the most friends or what would get us the the most followers, but what does God say in his word is my way to walk? Man's days will be 120 years. What is that referring to? Is God giving an age limit? Well, don't believe that's what's being said there because after the flood we see that there were those who lived beyond 120 years we see that in Genesis chapter 11 even today not many make 120 years that's quite a an accomplishment quite a a mark if you will others say that God is contrasting the godly and the wicked they're saying that this ver- these verses follow on the genealogy of Seth. They're saying that because God was dwelling in the descendants of Seth in the days of, of, of preceding the flood, that they lived longer because God was dwelling in them. That those who did not have the Lord's, God's spirit, lived shorter lives. And this was moving forward the lifespan, and moving forward the lifespan of all would be shortened because of the wickedness on the earth. A reminder of what happens when men separate themselves from the Creator. Still, others argue that these opening verses seem to be warning man against presumption. They say, well, there's nothing we can't do. Just give us enough time and enough resources, and we'll figure it out. We'll find our way. We'll lengthen life. We'll remove all diseases. We'll, we'll do whatever we want. Here, God says, no. They need to be reminded that they will not live for long periods, determine the length of their days. The Bible says this, that he who would see length of days must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's eyes are on the righteous. His face is against those who do evil. We place our hope for length of days, for eternal life upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who entered into that most holy place when he went on high and opened the way for those who believe in him to everlasting life. Calvin and Luther understood the 120 years reference to be God saying that his patience was up. In the days of Noah, God was patient, we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, but that patience was coming to to the end. And Calvin writes, the Lord is saying, I will delay my judgment no longer. I can appeal to nothing in man. My man is fleshly, perverse, The interactions with him are only contentious all the time. There's a lot going on in these verses. I I don't even want to get into the Nephilim this morning. I know there maybe you're wondering about that, but 
Let me just very quickly say these men were men of renown, but not for holiness and goodness, but for wickedness and all that they could accomplish in their power. And they were making a name for themselves, not for goodness. They did not consider the honor which their ancestors had won through virtue and religion. Instead, they were wanted to make a name for themselves in their great power and living according to their own rules. They thought themselves great when, in fact, their end would be sudden the coming judgment. What do we see then? Lastly, being witnesses to the coming judgment, what do we see in Genesis 6? We see a bitter contrast to what God said in Genesis 1, verse 31. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And here we read in verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. The Lord is grieved by man's actions. Calvin again, Calvin, to quote him once again, writes, the use of the words, the Lord was grieved, expresses the Lord's offense at the atrocious wickedness of man as if they had wounded his heart with mortal grief. Here is the antithesis between the upright nature created by God on one side and the corruption which sprung from sin. The Bible warns that God will bring an end to the wicked. Christ is coming to judge. We could read that throughout the New Testament. And just as in the days of Noah, it's going to be very sudden. Second Peter 3 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. How then ought you to live this being the case? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Thought of the suddenness of the terrorist attacks. September 11. Picture perfect fall day, beautiful day in New York and just like that, the lives of thousands were changed. Sudden destruction. The Lord has prepared a day for final judgment. It will be sudden and we must be ready. We must hate sin and love Christ and long for His appearing. And it ought to then determine how we look at each day, how we worship on the Sabbath, how we observe the Sabbath day, and how that then extends into the rest of the week in eliminating or removing worry and anxiety, or when there is hardship and danger that we would pray to God and not fret looking to one another for for some answer that we cannot give. Like the boy who emailed his mother that he had failed all his courses at college, he emailed this, failed everything, prepare Papa. And she emailed back, Papa prepared, prepare yourself. Pretty harsh, pretty frightening perhaps, 
but what we remember as we prepare for that coming day is the good news. In spite of all of our failings and our sins, shortcomings, in Christ we're seen as those who are perfect, whose record is without blemish. And so we look to that day with hope, with anticipation, with joy, for then all of the consequence of sin will be removed. All of the brokenness, all of the pains and aches, and it will be made new. And we will be with the Lord. That's that's to be our delight. In the midst of all that God has just said about the earth, verse 8 we come to now. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's why we have anticipation, hope, joy for the return of Christ. For we have found favor in Christ. So that when that sudden day comes, we can declare the praises of our Lord and Savior to the glory of God the Father. Noah found favor because he believed what God said and in faith he obeyed though there seemed no threat looming on the horizon. Imagine the conversation. People coming to Noah. What are you doing building this boat, ship, whatever you call it? I call it an ark. Why are you doing this? God told me to do it, so I'm doing it. I'm preparing, and I want others to prepare as well. God comes to, people come to you today. Why do you people live this way? There's... We're giving in marriage, we're, we're demolishing marriage, we're, doing, we're advancing medically, scientifically. Why, do you are, why are you all hung up on this coming day? Why do you have the priorities that you have? Why do you, why do you live the way that you do? Because God told us to do that, and we're preparing for the day when he will take us home. And he wants us to prepare others. I don't know if you've seen the replica of the ark in Kentucky, my family and I have seen it, and I, I looked at that, that ark and I thought, yeah, that took faith. This thing is massive. Massive. 120 years he's beaten wooden pegs to put this thing together. You can imagine how many people walked by and said, you are nuts. What is the matter with you? Why are you living this way? Because I'm preparing, because I'm walking by faith. Hebrews 11 says, in faith Noah built the ark, for, for he knew what was to come though it was yet unseen. We preach Christ as it says Noah preached. We preached God's deliverer that we might be prepared. What are you building as you wait for that day? When people observe your lives, do they say, there's something, you're you're anticipating something. You're you're looking for something far greater than the the, the next promotion or the next uh, six figures or the next uh, uh, hobby. Your vision's much bigger than ours. What is it? There's your opportunity. We're preparing for the return of Christ and we want to prepare others, including our own children and grandchildren and neighbors. We ought to be praying that we are compelled to live that way, that the love of Christ would compel us to live that way, to tell others, to ask God to help us live in this way, that others would be compelled to ask us about the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that they too might find favor with him 
and be prepared for that coming day. Noah did that for 120 years and more. We don't even have to do it that long. But we are called to do it, to be prepared, to speak, to live in such a way that others will say, what are you preparing for? May God help us to do that. Amen. Heavenly Father, as we hear of this description of the world before the flood, we are troubled by the fact that it sounds so much like our own day. And the reality of the coming of Christ also is before us. Make us men and women, boys and girls of faith who are prepared, who know favor with you in Christ and want to tell others that they too might know that favor, that they might be set free from the bondages, from the bondage of all the different sins and pleasures of this life. Oh Lord, give us joy in this life. Help us to enjoy the moments that we have together, even as we reflect upon how much more wonderful it will be in that coming day. Lord, may there not be a one here who has not found favor with you by faith in Christ. And if that is the case, may that one come today. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.